thank you, Lord, tonight for the Word of God. We thank you for the, the double-edged sword, that your Word is living and powerful, and that it uh, cuts deep, that it pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, that it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We thank you, Lord, that your Word will not return to you void. And as we settle our hearts, Lord, and open our, our, our hearts to you, we would ask tonight that your Holy Spirit would speak and teach us from this chapter in this text. Lord, you recorded it for us. Your word says that these things were written and recorded as examples for us upon whom the ends of the world are come. And so we're asking you, Father, that you would give us clear understanding and that you'd make personal application to each one of us as we study tonight. Thank you so much, Father, for the way that you speak. And we're asking you to do that now. Help us to hear. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It says in verse 1, chapter 32, and it says that Jacob went on his way. A week, uh, a week ago, I, as I shared with you, we were um, visiting family and our, our place where we came from, upstate, a little small town called Hilton outside of Rochester. Uh, it's where me and my wife both grew up. We met each other in high school. Um, and her parents live there now, and we visit there when we can, and it is always just a time of great refreshing. But one of the things that I um, miss about Rochester and about Hilton especially is the terrain and the layout of the land. Uh, everything up there is very much like what you would picture in like Kansas or some of those Midwestern um, areas where it's just plains. It is so flat up there, and everything is flat as a pancake, and the roads are straight as an arrow. It's just, the grid is north, south, east, west, and it's just like that. You just drive. And I remember when I lived up there growing up, it was so boring, you know, because you just, you just go down these roads for miles and miles. And then we moved down here. And we moved down here. There is nothing straight and flat. I mean, everything around here is just terrain and curves and, and and at first I really appreciated that it was just a lot of fun you know you really can find out what a minivan can do you know when you're going around those things in a way that you never could up there you know but but now having lived here for the length of time that we have now I really appreciate and love the straight and flat sometimes it's nice to just zone out and go you know and not have to worry if there's going to be a dog or a bear in the road you know when you when you take the next uh, kind of a bend you know but the Christian life, as we all know by now and as God gives it to us in the Word, is, is like a journey. And unfortunately, the Christian life is not a straight and flat kind of a thing. It is hills and valleys. In fact, God says that. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, verse 11, God spoke through Moses and he said that the promised land, the land that you're going into, which represented the life, the life of God's people, he said, it's not like Egypt, he said, but it's a land of hills and valleys and a land that is watered from the dew of heaven. In other words, this life that we live as Christians, this promised land life that God has given to us, it's not always straight and flat and predictable to where you can just zone out and you know it's always going to come. But it's a land, a life of ups and downs, of curves and turns, and things are always happening that keep us on our toes, hills and valleys. And I don't know if you can relate to that or appreciate it, but I find it to be absolutely the truth. I mean, this life that we have in the Lord is anything but predictable, isn't it? I mean, we go through good times, high, we're up on a mountain, and then we go down through valleys. And sometimes the seasons are short, and sometimes they're long, and it's unpredictable, and it's always turning, it's meandering. It's this life that we have. And it's just the way it is. It's up and down. And so we studied the life of Abraham, and then we transitioned into the life of Isaac. And now as we study the life of Jacob, and we're seeing these character studies, the very first characters in the Bible and in the history of God, really the history of humanity, we see that even from that time then, it was ups and downs. There were seasons that things were real clear, and the vantage point was nice. They could see where they were going. God was right there, very present, very helpful. But then there were seasons in the valley where it seemed like God was far away, where it seemed almost as though God's own, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that they were lost. They didn't know where they were. It was kind of the season of darkness, seasons of depression, even seasons of failure and backsliding. 
But then God faithful to bring them through that, and there would again be a mountaintop. We're seeing that even of old, God's people are no stranger to that kind of a thing. And I know that you and I, we can relate to it. When I was a young Christian, that used to really bother me. I would go through these seasons where I'd be up on a mountaintop and things would be so good. I would sense the Lord's presence. I would be hearing His voice. I'd gain new insight and revelation from Scripture as I would read. And I would just say, Lord, yes, this is it. This is what I've been seeking after. Thank you, God, that you're so real. You're so alive. You're so clear. But then time would pass and I would descend into these valleys and I would wonder if I was even saved there. Lord, what's going on? Where are you? I can't hear you. I read the Bible and I feel like I'm reading Shakespeare or an encyclopedia. I don't sense your presence at all. And Lord, what did I do? I'm sorry if I could just undo whatever it is or you tell me what it is. And I used to really freak out when I was in those valleys and not understanding why or what God was doing. But then God would bring me out of a valley and bring me up onto a mountaintop or onto a plateau. And after a while, I began to realize that that is the Christian life. Here's the good news, is that after you go through a few valleys and climb a few mountains, you realize that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, he didn't fail. He's not missing. He's not gone. He's not absent. He's not angry. It's just this is what it is. What I learned is that there's lessons and things that we need to grow through and go through on the mountaintop and also in the valley. And God is faithful to bring us through both. And I'm comforted by the words of John the Baptist. You know what he said when he was announcing the coming of Christ? He said this. He said that he will make every mountain low and every valley full. Now, if a mountain is low, it's brought level. If a valley is filled, it's raised up. And it says that he'll make the crooked places straight and the rough places smooth. And when we come to Christ and really grow in Christ... Even though there's ups and downs, hills and valleys, crooked and smooth, it's as though everything is straight on. Because there's a stability that God brings into the life of his people as we grow through the mountains and the valleys. Peter says it very well. 1 Peter chapter, 1, or chapter 5, verse 10. He says this. He says that after we have suffered a while, that it is God's will that we be established, strengthened, and settled doesn't mean that there's not going to be any more suffering or any more struggle or any more climbing and falling. But there is an establishing, there's a strengthening, there's a settling as we realize that he's in control of both the mountain and the valley. Well, as we come to chapter 32 of Genesis, what we have is we have Jacob kind of coming onto a mountaintop. He's coming to a place where there's going to be some clarity, where God is going to come very near and interact with Jacob in a very, very intimate way. It's a mountaintop. It's a good time in his life. There's going to be in it a little bit of pain, a little bit of fear and anxiety, a little bit of injury that will last the rest of his life, and somewhat of a nervous breakdown. But it's a good time in Jacob's life, nevertheless, as we look at it. But I love these words that we open with where it says that Jacob went on. Listen, if you're in a valley here tonight, if you're in a time of your life where you... You feel like, well, I was at one point led of God, but I don't know where I am now. My counsel to you is this. Keep going. Jacob went on. And I guarantee you this. If you keep going, God will bring you out of that valley. And you'll learn and gain what you need to learn and gain in that season that you're in. And then he'll bring you forward and you'll go on from there. Well, Jacob went on. He was in a long valley, seven years of valley. But now he comes out. And it says there that the angels of God met him. He's separate from Laban now. He's moving into a new chapter of his life. And it says that when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, I would say that's quite a mountaintop, wouldn't you? I mean, if you left here tonight and you've really been struggling and you just encountered one of the greatest battles of your life, a time when you thought you could lose your life at the hand of your former boss. I don't know if you can relate to that, you know. And then you come through it and you're free from it. And right away, God meets you with a host of angels. He opens your eyes and you just see this vast army of angelic beings all around you. You would say, whoa, Lord, you were with me that whole time. It was you that was defending me. 
It's been you that's been leading me. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your grace. What a mountaintop that he's on. And then he calls the name of the place Mahanaim, which means the place of two hosts. He looks up and he sees the host of God defending him, accompanying him along the way. And then he looks around and he sees his wives, his children, his servants, all that he has. And he says, God, you've made me a host. And it's just an amazing time of reflection. And I just love the way that God does this. He sends us out. He lets us walk. We might feel lost. There's hills and valleys. But when we come to the end of a chapter, he shows up again. It's his way. It's what he does. He's been doing it with Jacob. He does it here. He does it with us. Well, it says in verse 3, as Jacob now looks forward, it says that Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. You remember Esau. The last time Jacob saw Esau was now about 21 years ago. And they left on really bad terms. Jacob had ripped off his brother twice. He had deceived Isaac, their father, into taking Esau's blessing. And Esau was so enraged with Jacob that he was actually waiting for an opportunity to kill him, and thus Jacob had to flee. And he's been gone for 21 years now. And as he's returning, he's hoping that Esau's anger has subsided and that he'll be able to come back in peace. And so he sends messengers now to Esau for the sake of declaring to him, like, hey, I'm not coming looking for trouble, but I do come in peace. And so he commanded his servants, saying, Thus shall you speak unto my lord Esau. Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses, flocks and men servants and women servants. And I have sent to tell my lord that I may find grace in thy sight. In other words, I'm not coming seeking something. I'm not coming to lay claim on anything that was Isaac's. I'm not coming for an inheritance or because I need help or have gone bankrupt where I am. No, I have everything that I need, but I might find grace in your sight that somehow we could make amends if I could somehow make up for what I did to you all those years ago. And it says that the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to thy brother Esau and also he comes to meet thee and 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two bands. And so the messengers return and they declare to Jacob, yeah, we brought the message to Esau and he immediately gathered 400 of his men and now he's coming to get you. Now, we assume, and Jacob also did, that Esau automatically was coming aggressively that he was coming for vengeance, he was coming for revenge. And it's possible that maybe that was in Esau's mind, but maybe not. We're going to see in the next chapter, when the two actually do meet, there's absolutely no aggression at all that's present. I know it's kind of a spoiler because it kills the tension that is being built up here in the plot. It could be that Esau was being aggressive, but it could also be that he's being defensive. He knows the kind of man that Jacob was 21 years ago. And he's maybe just looking out for himself saying, yeah, sure, oxen, asses, donkeys, riches. Yeah, you've got it all. I know you, and I've fallen for your thing twice. I'm not going to be gullible the third time. He could be coming just defensively. He could also be coming just sending a message and saying, look, all right, I'll receive at face value your words that you're saying you're coming in peace. But I want you to know that I'm not just Esau anymore. I also have some resources at my disposal. And if you are coming with any mind to do any harm or take anything from me, I'm ready to defend myself. So we don't really know Esau's motive, but it wasn't absolutely that he was coming aggressively seeking to do harm to Jacob at this point. But it is interesting, Jacob's response, isn't it? It tells us that he was greatly afraid. Now the source of Jacob's fear was not necessarily Esau's power, or the lack of God's presence or promise that Jacob would be preserved. That was, of course, what he was afraid of, of losing at Esau's hand. But the source of the fear that Jacob had was the guilt that he carried for the way that he had dealt with Esau all those years previously. 
he knew that should Esau come aggressively against him, that he deserved it because of the way that he had treated Esau before. It's an amazing thing that guilt can do to us, isn't it? The power of guilt, of knowing the things that we have done in our past. I read an article that was published just today of a man in Oregon who came forward after 32 years. He committed a murder. He did it for the sake of money. He knew a man had cash in his place. He waited for him when he arrived home, and he strangled him and killed him. He took $400. And because there was no motive outside of that and no relation between the two, it was a cold case. They never had a suspect. They, they, they never were on the trail of this guy. But after 32 years, he walked into a police department there in Oregon where the crime was committed, and he turned himself in. And they said, well, why are you doing this? And he said, because I need to make, make right what I made wrong so many years ago. It's guilt. He escaped the law, but he couldn't escape his conscience. And it's an amazing thing what guilt can do, even if we get away with it before the authorities. Our conscience doesn't let us. We see that Jacob has been carrying guilt for 21 years. Now again, a spoiler. The good news is that Jacob isn't going to pay consequences for what he did. But the reason he goes through this is that he might learn that God's grace is enough to cover the foolishness of his past. And that's true for all of us that are here tonight. God's grace through the cross, through Jesus Christ, is big enough to cover all of the offenses of our past life. What are you carrying tonight? What does Satan plague you with when he puts before you scenes from your former life before you came to Jesus Christ? You need to know tonight that because of the gospel and because of God's grace, all of your sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. God says that he will remember it no more. He's not going to throw it up in your face. I think of Moses who slew an Egyptian and buried him in the sand. And after 40 years, still carrying the fear of what would happen if he went back to Egypt, God came to him and he said, Moses, don't worry. All the men that sought your life are dead, and I'm with you. God's grace covers our past. But Jacob's carrying the fear of it now. Well, how does Jacob process his fear? Notice it says in verse 8, that Jacob said, If Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. So he divides the company into two bands, and he thinks, well, at least I can protect half. And I'll put my family with the, maybe the safer half or the less vulnerable. And we'll have time to find out what Esau's motives are. But then he handles it the best way. How do you handle fear, anxiety? How do you handle it when something happens that just brings you to your nerves? Notice how Jacob handles it. It says in verse 9, it says, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said to me, return unto your country and to your kindred, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. I can divide into two whole complete companies I have so much. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And, and you said, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And so Jacob handles his fear, his anxiety, in the perfect way. And that is that he processes it before the Lord in prayer. What does he do? There's five things in this prayer that are an amazing path, a guide for you and I in terms of how we process anxiety and fear before the Lord when things come up. The first thing that Jacob does is that he reminds himself who God is and who he's talking to. He addresses God by name. He says, O God of my father Abraham and my father Isaac. Now, God doesn't need to be told who he is. He knows perfectly well who he is. He tells us who he is in the Bible. But Jesus even told us that when we pray, that we begin by saying, Our Father, which art in heaven. Now, that's not for God's sake. That's for our sake. It's to bring into our minds perspective as to who it is that we're talking to. 
And when we consider the things that we're bringing before him, the things that make us anxious or fearful, it's good for us to acknowledge who it is that we're bringing those fears before. You're the God who's omnipotent, the God who's all-powerful, the God that can do all things, the God who said, the God who is, the God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he begins there. He begins by addressing who God is, who he's talking to. The second thing that he does is that he reminds both himself and he reminds God of his promises and of his word. Notice what he says there um, in verse uh, 9, that he's the Lord who said, O God of my Father, the Lord which said unto me, Return to your country and to your kindred, and I will deal well with you. He reminds himself and God that what he's doing and where he is is in accordance with what God promised and said. That's a great thing to do. It's to just take account of where you are and then to lay before God his word and what he said and what he promised concerning those things. And so he reminds himself and God of the promise of the word. The third thing that he does is that he reminds himself before the Lord of all that God has already done for him. And this is huge. This is such a key as we process the fears looking forward that we look at God's faithfulness looking back. He says, I'm not worthy, he says, of all the mercies, plural, and of all the truth which you have showed unto your servant. For with my staff, the idea is that all I possessed was my staff. I passed over this Jordan, but now I've become two entire armies, two bands of people. He reminds himself of the faithfulness of God leading him as far as he's come. God, the amount of mercy that you've showed me to preserve me unto this point. I deserve to be squashed a long time ago when I burned Esau and my father Isaac 21 years ago. But for 21 years your mercy's been with me and you've preserved me all of this way. And not only that, God, but you've also shown me so much truth. You've shown me so much of how people work and how the world works and how you work and how two kingdoms are simultaneously coexisting and how I fit into the grand scheme of all of that and how it makes sense with what you called Abraham to be and what my future will be. God, you have revealed truth in my life. and You've shown me how to live this life. You've laid out the path that's before me. And not only that, God, not only mercy, not only truth, but you have blessed my life up to this point so abundantly that when I started, all I had was a stick. And now I have so much that I can separate it into two companies and make it look like one company is the whole thing. God, you've been so faithful. Do you know what's so important when we're processing the problems and the fears, anxieties that we're going through? To remember all that God has done for us up to this point. God knows our end at the very beginning. Do you know that? He knows every day of our life before we live it out. Now, we only know what we've lived up to till today. And so we think that that's how God is. And we kind of project our limitation on him. We think, well, I've been good enough for God to preserve me up to this point, but now I've just come to the end. And God, you didn't foresee that I would only make it this far. And now you're going to squash me. Listen, if God wanted to squash you, he could have squashed you a long time ago. And you might be here tonight thinking, well, I'm just one step away or a day away or even a breath. I don't even know if I'll make it through this service. God is done with me. He's going to squash. No, 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 no. If God wanted to squash you, he would have squashed you long ago. Look back at what he's done. Can you see his track record of faithfulness in your life in spite of where you and I have messed up? If you can see that, then you can be assured that he's going to complete what he began because that's his promise. Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you, he'll be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so Jacob reminds himself of his history with God, and he uses that to process his fears for the future. The fourth thing that Jacob does here in this is that he prays for deliverance with honesty. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and smite me and the mother with the children. 
His prayer in all of this, after reminding himself who God is and all that God has done, his prayer is, Lord, please deliver me. And notice the honesty in his prayer. He says, for I fear him. Do you know how much it pleases the Lord when we're honest with him in prayer? David said in Psalm 51 that God desires truth in the inward part. He doesn't desire perfection because he knows there's no perfection. And when we come to God pretending perfection, God sees right through that because he knows what we are. And this is not a lack of faith on Jacob's part to say that he fears. It's honesty. And he's declaring his need before a God who wants to meet that need. And so he says, God, I fear him. I'm afraid. God, I'm afraid. It's wrong to be afraid, but I'm afraid. This is what I am. And in honesty, he brings that fear before the Lord. And his prayer is for deliverance. And then finally, fifthly, he brings supplication. Do you know what supplication is? Supplication is what our kids do to us when they really want something really bad and they feel like they need to make their case. They ask and they say, I want this, but hear me out. And then they give us all the reasons why we should do the thing that they're about to ask. And so Jacob gives his supplication in verse 12. He said, for you said that I will surely do thee good and make your seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. God, if Esau kills me or takes out my family, then it puts the kibosh on the promise you made that I will one day be what you said I would. Now, that's such wisdom, isn't it? To bring God's promise and God's word to him in prayer. There's such authority there when we pray that way. And there's such a peace, too, because it gives us confidence and assurance that we've been heard and that God's going to do the thing that we've asked. This is just a perfect prayer. It's the best way to handle anxiety. Do you know what this is, what Jacob is doing here, if you were going to summarize it in a sentence? What he's doing is he's taking every thought captive. You guys know the verse, don't you? It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Of course, there's always one that I forget to put the tab in the thing. But 2 Corinthians chapter 10... I did put one. I just didn't label it. Verse 3. Paul writes this. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is fleshly, they're not swords and guns, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations. Those are fake thoughts. Images that don't really exist in real life, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, how many of us here in this room have thoughts, sometimes irrational thoughts, come into our mind from time to time, if not frequently throughout the day? I know I do. I'll be sitting somewhere and, you know, kind of going along happily through my day. And then all of a sudden, it's like, I don't even know where it came from, but this thought will come into my mind. How are you going to pay for this in the future? You're almost so many years old. Are you planning for retirement? How's that going for you? And all of a sudden, this thought is demanding of me that I give it my attention. Now, what the Bible is telling me is that I'm to take those thoughts and I'm to make them captive or I'm to bring them into subjection or slavery to the obedience of Christ. What does that mean? It means that every thought that comes into my mind, I'm to encapsulate it in the Word of God. In other words, what does God say about this thing that is manifesting itself as a thought in my life or in my mind. Well, if that thought is a fearful thought, for me to take that thought captive means that I'm going to say, well, what does God say about this? Well, what does God say about fear? If it's a fearful thought and it brings up fear in me. Well, the Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. Okay, so Lord, this thought is causing me fear. You say that he that fears is not made perfect in love. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that your love would so fill me that this fear would fall before me. Deal with this thought, Lord, according to the fearfulness that it is in the light of your great love. Let's say that that thought is maybe a lustful thought, a desire for something that is not mine. A lust can be anything. It could be money, it could be a position, it could be a 
dwelling place. It can be all kinds of things. What does the Bible say about that? The Bible says that we're to be content with such things as we have. Sometimes lust is pure sin. What does the Bible say that we're supposed to do with sin? It says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. So when a lustful thought comes into my mind, I take it captive by bringing it in subjection of the word of God and saying, God, I see this thought. It's a sinful thought. I confess it before you as sin. Get it out of my heart and out of my life. I brought that thought into captivity. Maybe it's a circumstance. Maybe it's a fear. Whatever it is, what does the Bible say about that situation? And then I enclose that thought in what that is and I process it before the Lord. That's what Jacob is doing here. He's taking his fear and he's putting it in the light of who God is and what God says and the plan for his future and he's processing it the right way. It's a great example of how to process these things. Well, I wish it was so simple as just, well, okay, I prayed that prayer and now everything's all good. That would be great, wouldn't it? It does work and God will hear and it's going to resolve right but Jacob still feels like he needs to prepare. And there's nothing wrong with that. Notice what he does. It says in verse 13 that he lodged there that same night and he took of that which came to his hand or from that which came to his hand a present for Esau, his brother. Here's what it is. 200 she-goats, 20 he-goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 milch camels and their colts, 40 kine and 10 bulls, 20 she-asses in 10 foals. Now that's an amazing amount of animals. It's upwards of 500 animals. And this is a present. He's like, oh, you know what, let's give him some of this and a little of that. Does this give you some idea of how much this man had? It's pretty remarkable, really, if you think about it. This is just a gift that he's going to give to Esau. He's got so much. You want to know why this encourages me? It encourages me because seven years before this moment, he had nothing. Seven years, he had nothing. Remember? We heard it in the last chapter. He went to Laban and he said, hey, it's time for me to go. I, I've got to provide for my own family. Thus far, I've been making you rich, but I've got nothing. And Laban said, okay, well, tell me what your wages are. And they made this whole contract. And in seven years, Jacob has been enriched so much that all of this, which represented great wealth, was just a gift that he would give to Esau. Really just a fraction, a portion of what he had. And it's encouraging to me because God can do a lot in a little bit of time when we're in his will and under the spout of his blessing. Sometimes people get nervous as they get older because they think, well, I don't have much time left and I still don't feel like I've caught my stride in life or my purpose where God wants me to be. And I can begin to get nervous and think that, well, age is catching up and God is absent and I'm missing out. No, no, God can do a lot in a very little amount of time. He's just waiting for us to surrender and submit to his plan and his will. Think about what God did with Jesus in just three years. It's remarkable. God can do a lot in a little bit of time. What he's after is a surrendered heart. In just seven years. I read an article yesterday that Israel, the nation today, in, in the modern day, Israel was just declared, I forgot by who, but some important body of governance in the world, that Israel has attained the status of the eighth most powerful nation in the world. The only nations in front of it are the U.S., the U.K., Russia, China, France, Germany, and Japan. Israel is eighth right after them. And you think, all right, well, big deal. It is a big deal. You know why? Because Israel's only 70 years old. Think about how long it took the United States to come to that level of power. How long Germany, Russia, China have been on the world scene to obtain that? Israel, in 70 years, God has raised them up to be the eighth most powerful nation in the world. God can do a lot in a little bit of time when we're in his will. The key is, are we in his will? Well, it says that he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by themselves, and he said unto his servants, Pass over before me and put a space between drove and drove. And he commanded the foremost, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets me and asks thee, saying, Whose art thou? And where goest thou? And whose are these before thee? Then you shall say, They be the servant Jacob's. It is a present sent unto my lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. 
And so commanded he the second and the third and the followed and followed the droves, saying, On this manner shall you speak unto Esau when you find him. And say ye, moreover, Behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us, for he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face, peradventure he will accept me. So went the present over before him, and himself, Jacob, lodged that night in the company. And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons, and he passed over the ford or the brook called Jabbok. And so he sends these gifts hoping to appease Esau. Now listen, he has prayed. He's processed his fear and his anxiety the right way. But now he makes a plan and he does everything that he can on his end to work in the situation. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, sometimes we think that we get into a circumstance or there's something we're fearful about. And then we just pray and put it before the Lord and then do nothing. If we really had faith, we would just do that. We would just pray and then do nothing. Well, Jacob doesn't do that. He prays. He handles it the right way. But then he says, well, what can I do in the situation? And he does it. And it works out. Whether he needed to or not, we don't know. But it wasn't wrong that he did it. And so it isn't wrong for us to plan and to do, but ultimately our dependence and our trust and our defense is from God and not from ourselves. Well, God's got something for Jacob now. Very famous passage, very famous incident in his life. It says in verse 23 that he took them, that is his family, and he sent them over the brook, and he sent over what he had. But in verse 24, it says that Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he, that is the man that wrestled with him, saw that he prevailed not against him, that is Jacob, he touched the hollow of his thigh and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he, that is the man that wrestled with Jacob, said, Let me go for the day breaks. And he, Jacob, said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he, that is the man that wrestled Jacob, said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore, or why is it that you ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. What an amazing instance or thing to happen in the life of one of God's people. Think of it, all of a sudden he is living in fear of what's going to happen the next day when he sees Esau for the first time in two decades. He sent the five droves of presents, not knowing if they'll ever reach their destination or what the receptivity will be when they go. He takes his family and everything that's precious to them and he separates them from the rest of the company. And then as the sun is setting, he withdraws himself over the brook. And he's alone as the sun goes down and in complete isolation as night falls. Suddenly he hears a rustle in the bushes. Now talk about anxiety, right? Talk about a panic attack. What is that? Is that Esau? Who is? Who goes there? What is? Am I going to get eaten by a bear? Maybe that'd be better. And then all of a sudden, a man jumps on him in the middle of the night, and they begin to wrestle. Now, this isn't spiritual. This isn't something that didn't happen in the physical realm. This was a physical something. Jacob said, I have seen face to face. And suddenly there's a wrestling match that ensues. And at first Jacob has no idea who it is that he's wrestling. But after a while you get the idea that he begins to catch on. But God begins to wrestle 
physically with a man that he's been wrestling with spiritually for decades. How many of you have ever wrestled with God? Maybe not physically, but spiritually. I know that I have. I know that I do from time to time. There's things that God wants to do in our life, things that God wants to get his hand on, things that God needs to change. And it requires a wrestling. Notice that God had to get Jacob alone first. Notice that it happened at night. It tells us both of those things in verse 24. It says that he was left alone and that he wrestled until the breaking of the day. Oftentimes when God wants to do something in our lives, he brings us into a season of isolation. Well, we might be around people. We still go to work. We still go home. We still raise our families and interact with people. But inside there's an isolation. We feel alone. We feel lonely. There's something happening. We know that we're in a valley. We're in a dark place in a dark season. It's a spiritual night that's going on. And it's usually in those times that God comes and we begin to just wrestle with Him about something going on in our life or something we're waiting for or something that's not happening or some area of disillusionment. It tells us in this situation that God prevailed not against Him. So God begins to wrestle with Jacob, but Jacob doesn't let up. Now, what is wrestling? Wrestling is grappling, struggling with the intent to subdue, to control, to dominate, or to bring into submission. That's what wrestling is, right? You try to pin someone down, get their shoulders to the mat, and you've gained control. You've gained the mastery. And so you have Jacob trying to master God, and you have God trying to master Jacob. That's an unfair fight, isn't it? But yet we fight that fight every day, don't we? Who's going to have control? Me or God? And so God begins to wrestle with us, always for our good. And the first stage is that he prevails not against us. And so he tries to wrestle. He's gentle at first. He puts us in a half Nelson. He lets us feel a little bit of his strength, but then we turn around with the right hand and we slither away and we dive back on top and we say, no, Lord, this is going to be done my way. I'm going to do this in my time and my will. I'm going to be who I want to be. And Lord, your power and blessing is going to be in my life on my terms. God says, oh yeah, we'll take it to stage two then. And God touches the hollow of Jacob's thigh. It represents the strength of our stand the source of our walk. And what was going on in Jacob's life at this time is that his walk was out of sync with God. There was a spiritual limp in Jacob's life because God was not truly the Lord. He was his savior, maybe. He was his God by profession. His name was written in the book of life, but he was not the Lord. Jacob was still his Lord, his own Lord. There was a limp in his spiritual walk, and what God did is God let there be a physical manifestation that represented the spiritual infirmity that was going on. Okay, let's see what the issue is. You think that everything is okay? Let me show you that it's not. Boom! And all of a sudden, whoa! <laughs> now, we can be disjointed or dislocated in many areas of our life. Maybe... We're here tonight, some of us, and our walk with God is not where it's supposed to be. There's something amiss. There's a lordship issue going on. Maybe there's other areas of our life that are out of his control. We're wrestling with God over control in a certain area of our life. Maybe it's in our marriage or human relationships. Maybe as parents. Maybe in our responsibilities as employees or employers or in our business. Maybe in something that we're seeking God to accept in our behavior that we know is wrong and that's unacceptable. And it's out of joint. It's disjointed spiritually. Well, if God in his gentleness can't wrestle us into submission, then sometimes he brings it to stage two where there's a little bit of discipline. Hebrews chapter 12. My son, despise not thou the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're rebuked of him, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son that he receives. And sometimes there needs to be discipline in our lives to bring us to that place. But Jacob is way stronger than that. It says that he wrestled, in verse 25, 
with his thigh out of joint. His thigh was out of joint as he wrestled. He goes, I'm not letting go. I'm not giving up. I'm... And he kept going even though the discipline had happened in his life. What are you going to do when God disciplines you? What do you do when God disciplines you? Do you give up? Do you turn back? When there's pain, when there's pressure, when God chastises, do you say, fine, God, if that's the way you're going to deal with me, if you're going to fight unfair, then I'm done, I'm out. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not following you anymore. I'm just going to detach, I'll pull away. And that's it. Not Jacob. He says, no, God, I'm not done. We're going to finish this here. I've felt like this before. Have you? I've, I have wanted to fight God before. I, I can think of very specific instances where I have called him out. And I've said, Lord, just show up right here. And then I've gotten frustrated because I'll say, but that's not fair because you can't win. You can't win. You know, you can't win. Which is good. Notice what happens. It says in verse 26, it says that the Lord said, let me go for the day breaks. And Jacob said, I will not let you go except you bless me. Now, this is the greatest test of faith that Jacob has ever had in his entire life. Because essentially what God is saying to Jacob here, he's saying, listen, Jacob, I've got things to do. The sun is about to come up. You've got an important meeting with your brother. You've got things to do. I've got things to do. Let me go. I can give you a couple hours at night, but please, enough is enough already. And Jacob says, no, I'm not letting you go. I'm not tapping out. I'm not quitting. I'm not letting go of this until this is settled right here, right now. Essentially, it's like what Jesus said to the Syrophoenician woman, remember? He said, sorry, but I'm not going to give the, the bread that's intended for the kids to the dogs. I've got nothing for you. And the woman argued, she persisted, and Jesus commended her faith. And this is faith on Jacob's part, that he knows that God's got something for him that he has yet to experience. Jacob said, no, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. He realized that Jacob wanted something his whole life, and he could never quite find it, even though he had it. Maybe you can relate to that here. God says, what's your name? And he said, my name is Jacob. And God said, your name will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince, you have power with God and with men, and you have prevailed. By the way, Jacob lost the fight. You realize that? When the hip went out, Jacob lost, and in losing, he won. When we lose and ultimately find ourselves in submission and surrender to God, we ultimately win. And that's why God can look at Jacob and say, you prevailed, and he changed his name that day. He said, your name is no longer heel catcher, conniver, but I have now gotten a hold of that part of your life that you have held onto as your personal identity and crutch for all these years. And your name will no longer be heel catcher, but now your name is Israel. The name Israel, Sarah, is Sarah L. It's contentious, or princess, rather, with God, or prince with God. You know, Sarah and El, it's kind of the same word. In other words, a prince with God, that's your new name. He's God's prince, that's what he calls him. Now the implication when someone is a prince, and listen to this, is that their authority stands in relation to the king. So he has authority because of who he is under. In other words, as long as Jacob is under God's authority then he prevails with God and with men. That's huge. I want you to think about it. Because when we're not under submission to the Lord, we have no authority with him, and we have no authority before people. But when we're in submission to his authority, we have power with him because he looks at us as his kids, and we have power with others because we're the prince of the highest king. I mean, if the prince of wherever came in here tonight, we would give them respect, not because they're the king, but because they're the son of the king. And that's the idea, is that he says, listen, you have prevailed, and you now have power with God and men. It says that Jacob then went on, and he said, what is your name? And the Lord says, why is it that you ask after my name? And it says that he blessed him there. In other words, Jacob, you already know who I am. You don't need me to tell you. Your suspicions are confirmed. I am who you think. And it says that he obtained the blessing that he wanted. Now, what was the blessing that he wanted? He declares it in verse 30 when he names the place Peniel. 
He says, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. The blessing that was given to Jacob that day is that he came to know God in a fuller, richer, and more real way than he ever had before. It wasn't a something. He already had everything that he could want. What could he be given? But the thing that he was really hungry for, the thing that he had been seeking all that time, was more of God. And he got it. He said, I've seen you face to face, and you didn't kill me. You're actually pleased with me. You had the chance to squash me tonight, God, and you didn't. You love me. What's the purpose for this fight? Why did God come and meet Jacob? Some have said and suggested it's because Jacob's way was to run away. He was probably going to run away from Esau, and so God made it so he couldn't run. That's probably not it, though maybe a little. Some of it might have been or had to do with who Jacob was as a man, that he needed to be changed. But mostly what this is about, it's not about who Jacob was and the change that needed to be made in him, but it's mostly about whose Jacob was, and that is that he belonged to the Lord. And what God wanted Jacob to know is that God loved Jacob. It wasn't about what God wanted to do with Jacob. It wasn't about what God wanted Jacob to be and become. It was about what God wanted in Jacob. God wanted him. Do you know that that's God's objective in every one of our lives? See, we think it's about what God wants to do with me. Or who God wants me to be, the kind of man or woman that I'm supposed to be in him. Yeah, those things are important and they'll happen. They're real. But God's greatest concern with any one of us is our relationship with him. Do you know tonight that God loves you? No, no. He, he, he accepts me. God tolerates me. God is a parent. And we know that parents don't have favorites, right? But I'm certainly not the favorite. No, 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 no. You are. And he loves you that much. That was the blessing that Jacob needed. He didn't need anything else. And it was the thing that he got. Now in closing the chapter, notice what it says in verse 31 and 32. It says that he passed over from Penuel and the sun rose upon him and he halted upon his thigh. He was limping. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew or the muscle which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. In other words, Jacob carried the mark of this moment with him for the rest of his life in the way of a limp, in a cane, and a staff that he would lean upon for the rest of his life. You say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that God didn't heal him? You mean to tell me that in the process of this discipline, in this wrestling match, in this struggle for control over who was the Lord of Jacob's life, something happened to Jacob and that that something would be permanent for the rest of his life and the healing never came? That's right, the healing never came. And sometimes the things that God does and allows to happen in our lives for the greater good of our relationship with Him, sometimes those things don't go away. Sometimes we carry a struggle to the grave. Sometimes the burden of a temptation that we struggle with in our flesh is never going to die. Sometimes an infirmity or a sickness that has come to us isn't going to be healed or be taken care of. Sometimes a circumstance isn't going to end the way we think it would end the best way. But it will happen the best way. God's way. You say, well, how is that possible? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. Jacob's claim to faith, it says that by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, he blessed the sons of Joseph and he worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. In other words, the thing that made Jacob the man that he was was the fact that he had to lean on God in an area of infirmity for the rest of the days of his life and that that became the foundation of his worship and his relationship with God. God used that weakness to draw Jacob and keep Jacob close to his side for the rest of his life. And it became the best thing that Jacob ever had. 
in John chapter 5 and then again in John chapter 9. And we're almost done, don't get nervous. There's two men that were healed by Jesus of infirmities. In John chapter 5, it was the man by the pool of Bethesda. And he was crippled for 38 years. By the pool of Siloam, rather. And Jesus was there, and Jesus said to the man, he said, hey, would you want to be healed? If you could. The man began to make excuses. Well, I don't have anybody to put me in the water. I, I, I can't be healed. Everybody gets in there first, and I'll just never be healed. And Jesus looked at the man, and he said, you want to be healed? He said, take up your bed, rise up, and walk. I said, all right. He stands up. He's made whole that moment. No water, no hoopla, no angel. Just healed. Jesus heals him. He rolls up his bed and he begins to carry it away. He's like, wow, I was healed today. 38 years, I'm better. It happened. I'm free. A few minutes later, some of the Pharisees, religious rulers, see this man carrying his bed. And they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Got a hall pass? Come here. You know what day it is, buddy? Look at your smartphone. It's the Sabbath. You're carrying your bed. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed on the Sabbath. The guy looks at him and says, look, the guy who healed me told me to take up my bed. He told me I could do this. And they said to him, who told you you could take up your bed and walk? And you know what it says in John chapter 5? It says that he knew not who Jesus was because the Lord conveyed himself away. He was healed. His prayer was answered. The thing that he wanted most in life, he received. It happened just like that. The power of God, he can do whatever he wants. And he did it. But the man didn't know Jesus. John chapter 9, a man who's blind from birth. Jesus heals him. He can see. He testifies. He says, look, I, I don't know who he is. All I know is this. I once was blind, and now I see. We're all familiar with the passage. He was healed. The miracle came. But he didn't know who Jesus is. He eventually comes to know him because Jesus returns to that man a second time. The first one he never did. Could it be tonight that the thing that you struggle with the most, the infirmity, the weakness, the sickness, maybe the anxiety, the temptation or the sin issue that you just can't seem to get past, but it just keeps coming back and you wonder, will this craving and this temptation ever leave me? Could it be possible that that is the very thing that God is allowing in your life so that you, on a continual and daily basis, will need to lean on Him to be your strength and your source and your victory in that thing. Jacob came to the end of his life and he worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. And his life testifies to you and me that this limp that I've carried with me for all these years is the greatest thing that's ever happened because it has become my fellowship with God and the very thing that makes me rich. Oh, Father, we just come to you tonight. We thank you for this chapter. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for your ways. I'm impressed tonight, Lord, at how individually you deal with each one of us. You did not deal with Jacob the same way you dealt with Abraham and Isaac. And Lord, the way you deal with us is not the way you deal with Jacob. But yet we see ourselves in him so clearly. And tonight as we sit here before you, Lord, we know that you've put your finger on things in our hearts. You've addressed questions that we've had. You've called us to relate with struggles that we face. And it's our prayer and heart's desire tonight, O oh Lord, that we would have a penual experience. Father, that you would make clear and alive to us the things that you're doing in our life and the reason why. And I ask tonight, Lord, for any of us that have a submission issue, that you would help us tonight to realize that your intent for us is grace and goodness, mercy and kindness. And that what things we need to lay down or what things we might need to accept and embrace what things we might need to lean on you for, though they be painful to us. That you would give us faith and power to do that. And so we thank you, we look to you, we ask for you to help us. Lord, be with us. Strengthen us, Lord, that we might go on our way. 
we profess that you're God and we trust you tonight. In Jesus' name. As we close tonight, if maybe there's something that you just want to lay before the Lord, you feel like you want to come to the altar, spend a moment just surrendering in some physical way, putting feet to something spiritual that's going on, that's able, you're able to do that. Let's all stand together as we sing.